Well, welcome this evening. We are continuing a multi-week study really into the origins and some of the history of Southern Baptists. Where did we come from? How did we get to where we are today? And some of you have been Southern Baptists since your earliest memory. You were somewhere in a cradle roll um, even before you were born, perhaps. And uh, some of you have that background. Others of you are relatively new to Southern Baptist life, and perhaps you've never taken the time to, to find out what Southern Baptists were about. And so we've been just starting at a, at a particular spot in the early 1700s. We have brought it forward now to the middle of the 1800s. And what we've seen so far is that Southern Baptists, as we know them, would not have existed apart from what was called the First Great Awakening in the 1740s. That revival produced a movement uh, that affected a lot of denominations. And in every denomination, you had people who had a genuine born-again experience. And they typically were called the New Lights or the New Way or the New Something. And then you had the people who, who didn't trust the revival and didn't trust the enthusiasm and didn't trust the changes in people's lives, and they were called the Old Lights. And so you had Old Light Presbyterians and New Light Presbyterians. You had Old Light, uh, well, the Methodists were new, but you had Old Light Congregationalists and you had New Light Congregationalists. And out of those groups of new people, a new kind of Baptist was, was born. There were Baptists already existing in the colonies. They dated back to the 17th century, 1600s. Uh, they tended to be very Calvinistic, uh, meaning that they emphasized more God's work in salvation than man's part. And they d were not big on starting new churches, and they weren't big on spreading the gospel. They, they were just a few churches scattered here and there in the north and in the south. But after that first great awakening, there were a group of congregationalists in Connecticut who came out and became convinced that infant baptism was wrong, that the only person that should be baptized is someone who knows what they're doing, who has made a personal investing of faith in Jesus Christ, and that individual who believes, consciously believes in Christ, is a suitable candidate for baptism. We call that believer's baptism. Uh, they were called separate Baptists, as opposed to the Baptists who had been here already called regular Baptists. And these separate Baptists moved to the south. They came to a place called Sandy Creek, North Carolina, and within one generation, from 1750 to 1775, hundreds of churches were started. Uh, hundreds of people came to Christ in Virginia, all the way down to Florida, and ultimately across to Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Kentucky. We would not be here tonight had it not been for that spiritual move of God in the middle of the 1700s. Last week, we brought it forward. We talked about what led to the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention. We saw how Baptists uh, began to organize themselves around missions after another revival that took place on a campus in Williamstown, Massachusetts, Williams College. Not Williams Baptist College in Arkansas, but Williams College in Northwest Massachusetts. A campus revival there resulted in a group of students who said, we need to be sending missionaries overseas. By 1812, they had formed the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, and they sent off the first five missionaries overseas. They were not Baptists. They were Congregationalists. But on board ship, two of those men were studying the Greek New Testament, trying to understand how God had used a man named William Carey in the 1790s to start overseas missions work out of London, England. 
And so they wanted to understand, because they were going to meet this William Carey person when they got uh, to South Asia, and they wanted to understand what Baptists believe. So they began studying the New Testament. These two young men, congregationalists, on board ship, the first missionaries from American soil going overseas, suddenly realized that they had more in common with Baptists than congregationalists. Their names were Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice. When they got to Burma, and I jokingly say they flipped a coin, but it was decided that Adoniram Judson would stay in Burma and begin starting churches, but he had no support. They had to resign their congregational uh, mission support. And so Luther Rice came home and began to organize Baptists. Baptists began meeting every three years in the North and the South together, the Triennial Convention. The Triennial Convention met from about 1817 uh, uh, right up to the division between the Northern and Southern Baptists in 1845. Yes, the issue was slavery, but the argument was over who could be appointed as a missionary. Uh, could a slave owner be appointed as a missionary? The Foreign Mission Board at the time, located in the North, said, eventually they said no. And at that point, Southern Baptists, literally divided, pulled out, and formed the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. Not a pretty start. But God has a way of working through our frailties and our faults. And in spite of that, Southern Baptists today are the largest uh, religious group other than Catholics in the United States. We have more missionaries operating overseas than any other single denomination on the planet. And for that, we can be grateful. God is using, using you and using us uh, in that way. So that brings us to tonight. We want to talk about the early growth of the Southern Baptist Convention and the challenges they face. So we're going to look at the first 50 years or so of our history from 1845 to about 1900. In coming weeks, when I only plan to do this through the end of July, we're going to take the, uh, the 1900s that we just, some of us just remembered. Anybody not born in the 1900s? Uh, well, I know the, yeah, those back there. I, I, but everybody else was born in the 1900s at some point. No, anybody born in the 1800s? <laughs> anybody knew anybody born in the 1800s? Yeah, a lot of us did. So, but uh, there's a lot of history to tell, and, and the Southern Baptist Convention today is not what it was in the, in the 19th century, in the 1800s, but we need to see uh, some things tonight that I think will help you with what we'll be studying in a few weeks. It looks like we're always fighting about something as a denomination. It looks like we're always arguing about something, and what we discover is that that's in our DNA, and you'll see that tonight. Um, Baptists love to fight, and uh, I'm not proud of that, I'm just saying... Baptists have always fought and argued over things, and we'll, we'll see that this evening. Before I begin, I want to read a scripture, and that really, really just relates to what we studied this morning. I'm just reading one verse from Psalm 103, verse 13, and then I want to pray as we begin. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Would you pray with me? Father, we... We're grateful tonight that we can call you Father. Lord, as we look at our history, we know it's more than just a history of what men and women have done. But we want to be careful to look for your activity in history. 
to recognize that in spite of our humanity, you have used us for your honor and for your glory, that there are many people who will be in heaven in eternity because you work through sinful people to accomplish your purposes. We know that's true of every group of Christians on the planet. None of us can say that we are without sin. But Father, as we, we look at this, we pray we also might learn so that we wouldn't repeat the mistakes of our forefathers. We pray it would give us insight into our present and that although we're an individual, local, and a standalone church, a part of your body, we recognize that. But we also know we're part of the larger body of Christ. And we want to be wise. We want to have your heart as we walk with other churches. Father, for that individual tonight who just came for whatever reason, they need encouragement. They need to hear your voice. They need to be encouraged. I pray tonight through our fellowship together, they would experience something of your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, as I've said each week, <clears throat> this is essentially a, a 45,000-foot flyover of Baptist history. There are things I wish we could talk about, would love for us to talk about, um, but I have a very, I think, a very specific purpose as we move through this material, trying to highlight some of the main things. So, Southern Baptists were birthed in 1845 in Augusta, Georgia, and um, a group of delegates, they were called then, later they were called messengers, met together and organized the Southern Baptist Convention. So the early years was a period where, where the different parts of the Southern Baptist Convention came into existence. The first one and the primary one, the one that's always been most important to us, is the emphasis on foreign missions. And so the Foreign Mission Board was the first entity or the first agency that was launched in 1845 with headquarters in Richmond, Virginia. Now one of the things you'll notice about all of the, the organizations that we support the Southern Baptists, whether it's <clears throat> the present-day IMB, International Mission Board, which is in Richmond, or the North American Mission Board, which is in, anybody know where it is? Atlanta. It's in Atlanta. Or Lifeway Christian Resources, which is in Nashville. We know where that is. Um, or the six seminaries, which we won't go through all six and where they're located. Uh, or the Women's Missionary Union, which is located in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, each of them is in a different place. <clears throat> we don't have a single location where all Baptist work is located. That was very intentional. Uh, we are not a hierarchical organization. We don't take orders from Nashville or Atlanta or Richmond. Uh, we are an independent, standalone, autonomous, self-governing piece of the body of Christ right here at Wynn Baptist Church. And so it was very important to the organizers of the Southern Baptist Convention that it never appear that we had a central location that was like the Vatican or like headquarters that kind of gave direction to everything else. So the Foreign Mission Board was created in Richmond. The first secretary was James Barnett Taylor. Um, lovely picture of him there. All these guys had beards in the 19th century. It's made a comeback. Some of these beards were really long then, and it seems like we are doing that again. Not me. Foreign Mission Board. Probably the most recognizable missionary of this early period was not a man, but was a woman. And it was Lottie Diggs, Charlotte Lott, Diggs Lottie Moon. And Lottie is short for Charlotte. 
who lived from 1840 to 1912. She was raised in a devout Christian home, but she was a skeptic of Christianity until she got saved at the age of 16. Uh, she became a teacher. She was short. She was barely four feet tall. Uh, some of y'all might appreciate that. Uh, in 1873, she went to China where she ran a girls' school. However, controversy erupted when she began preaching the gospel out in the open to men and women. And men and women were being saved. And she was organizing churches. And she was baptizing people. And so the male missionaries were very offended by that. Uh, Lottie Moon, if you ever read of her life, was um, an aggressive advocate for a biblical view of womanhood that would allow women to be involved in congregational decision-making and mission planning and strategy. She was quite, um, some people would say she was a rebel. In 1887, she suggested the idea of a special Christmas offering for missions. Guess what they called it? The Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. The next year, the WMU... The WMU followed her suggestion, and they began that annual emphasis since that time, 1888. Lottie Moon, the offering, has contributed over $2 billion, $2 billion to foreign missions. She died in Japan on Christmas Eve in 1912. Um, she was so ill, they were trying to get her back to the States. She died on board ship. She had nearly starved herself to death. She had given so much of her own food away to the native Chinese before they finally got her out of China. Two other countries where we were involved early on, one was in Africa. In 1846, the FMB, or the Foreign Mission Board then, appointed John Day and other black Americans to work in Liberia. Uh, does anyone know that here's the background on Liberia, where Liberia came from? Anybody? Yes, Martha. Yes, and there was, a, there was a good reason for that, maybe, maybe an ulterior motive for that. In the South, in the United States at the time, there were roughly a half million uh, free persons of color who were not slaves, about 500,000. And there were African-American leaders, and there were white leaders. And before the Civil War, uh, typically African-Americans and Anglos, whites, worshipped in the same buildings in the same congregations. Uh, when a black person was baptized, they were on the roll at Wynn Baptist Church. If a white person was baptized, they were on the roll. Now, typically they would sit in the balcony. African-Americans would sit in the balcony. White people would sit downstairs. But still, they were part of the same church. So it was during that era that the idea occurred that, that these free persons of color, uh, many of them, the African-Americans, had a sincere desire to evangelize people back in Africa. Now, you have to remember, though, that many of them were... Americans for multiple generations. They had been born in America, in the colonies, and, and, or, and they had generations here. So whatever connection they had to Africa was genetic, but it was not cultural anymore. It was long since gone. Well, there was one man in particular, a missionary, African-American, named Lot Carey. And early on, before the split between Baptists in the North and South, <clears throat> Lot Carey was sent by Baptists to go to a place, and they formed a colony called Liberia. And in fact, Lot Carey became one of the first governors of this new country of Liberia. And so we sent missionaries, the Southern Baptists, to 
Liberia. And uh, we also had work in Brazil. In 1880, we appointed a couple, William and Ann Luther Bagby. Ann served 61 years. That was the longest and still the longest tenure of any Southern Baptist missionary. Um, all five of their children also became missionaries. And by the year 1900, Brazil was the most responsive field that we had in our Southern Baptist mission work. Now, let me switch gears to the Home Mission Board. When it was founded, the Southern Baptists formed the Board of Domestic Missions with headquarters in Marion, Alabama. Uh, they, they struggled. There were a lot of financial difficulties, a lot of ups and downs. Uh, in 1879, um, a man named, with the last name Broadus, we'll say more about him in a moment, <clears throat> he wrote a resolution that passed that, that urged cooperation between Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists in domestic mission work. And that was a real significant move. <clears throat> in 1874, they changed the name to the Home Mission Board. <clears throat> in 1882, they relocated to Atlanta. The first president of the Home Mission Board was Isaac Tishner. Isaac Tishner served from 1882 to 1899. He was a very good administrator, very good with money, and he helped solve a lot of the financial problems that the board was having. Um, he was a strong advocate of starting new work in the South. Most of the early associations of churches were formed to start new churches within those associations. The title for the person that was set aside full-time in, in the association uh, was called the Associational Missionary. Today, typically, they're called Director of Missions. In Arkansas, we preserve the name Associational Missionary. And if you go back through the early records, even in Arkansas, the associational missionary would go to a place that didn't have a Baptist church or a Christian church and would hold tent revivals, would just hold a revival and would preach the gospel. And when enough people got saved, they would start a church and it would be a new church in the association. And that's what they did. And so this man was advocating that. Um, however, he clashed with his counterpart to the north. There were two home mission societies. His name was Henry Morehouse to the north. Morehouse contended that the Northern Home Missionary Society had a right to work in the South and that the Southern Board should be abolished. And, um, and of course, Southerners didn't like that. We took issue with that. And in 1894, <clears throat> we had a meeting of the minds between the North and the South in Virginia and formulated a compromise. It was called a polity agreement. And they literally divided up the territories of the United States, the, the various states, and said, Southern Baptists can go here, Northern Baptists can go here, but ne'er the twain shall meet. That's why uh, when you go further west, you find fewer and fewer Southern Baptist churches. We were late going to California. We were late going to Arizona. We were late going to Nevada. Why? Because in the polity agreement, the Northern Baptists were given those territories to develop new churches. <clears throat> and it started with this particular agreement. Uh, prior to this agreement, there was a lot of Northern Baptist activity here in the South. I mentioned last time that uh, Judsonia, Arkansas, Judsonia, Arkansas is named after Judson College. It doesn't exist there anymore. But Judson College was founded by a group of Northern Baptist missionaries. In fact, they were Welsh missionaries who came into that part of Arkansas and started 
a church and was preaching the gospel and, and started a Sunday school. And they started this little college. The public schools of Judsonia, Arkansas, now sit on the property that was Judson, Judson College. And, of course, the name is taken from Adoniram Judson. Uh, Northern missionaries were working in places like um, in the Indian Territory, Broken Bow, Oklahoma. We call it today. Uh, it's near Queen, in that area of Arkansas. There were Northern missionaries working there. But ultimately, they formed this agreement, and it, and it kept Southern Baptists from working in certain areas of the country until after World War II. So this agreement lasted about 60 years. When I went out west to California in the 1980s, those polity agreements were finally and officially dissolved. Southern Baptists who went to fight in World War II passed through Southern California, did their basic training and that sort of thing, went and fought in the Pacific Theater. When they came back, they settled in Southern California. They settled in Bakersfield in the valley, uh, San, uh, San Fernando Valley. There were churches there in Northern California. They just settled out there. And, and they did the same thing in Arizona. And so Southern Baptist work dates in those areas of the country after World War II. Arizona, by itself, as a state convention, uh, helped start churches in Washington, in uh, Oregon, in all over the West. But our strongest work was in Arizona, and then it spread all over um, the, uh, the Dust Bowl, 1930s. A lot of Southern Baptists went out west um, looking for work. Okies and Texans and renegades and folks like that went out there looking for work. And so I ran into a lot of churches, uh, smaller churches in California when I was out there. That by the 1980, they were 40, 50, some of them 60 years old, and they were dying. And if I was go to a typical church at that time in Southern California, everybody there had a Southern accent. That which, by the way, people in Southern California don't have Southern accents. We called them y'all clubs because they were groups of Southerners that had congregated and formed churches, and which was great, but they had never reached the native Southern California. Um, there were cases where churches had been started that had completely changed in their makeup, but they were holding on to ways of doing church like we did church in Texas and Arkansas and Louisiana and Mississippi in the 1950s, but they were doing it still in the 1980s. I used to tell them, they don't even do that back home, guys. But they were holding on to that. All that began to change when a guy named Rick Warren started Saddleback Church, and he was a native Californian, and he began to reach native Californians. And today, Southern Baptists are the largest non-Catholic group in California. Um, and uh, we have about 1,100 churches in California. It's not nearly enough. 90%, 95% of Californians are nothing. They're not Catholic, they're not Buddhist, they're not Baptist, they're nothing. And you can go to whole communities with thousands and thousands of homes and there'll be no church in it. So anyway, I'm off track. Home mission board. Let's talk now about Sunday school board. <clears throat> Sunday school board. Southern Baptists made four attempts to start a board to publish Sunday school literature and, and materials and resources for churches. Um, there were two official attempts, two unofficial attempts. The bottom line is they all failed. 
Uh, let me talk about one of the most successful failures. Um, it was the last one that failed. It was a Sunday school board by name, started in 1863, lasted 10 years, formed in Greenville, South Carolina by two seminary professors. Uh, Basil, Basil Manley Jr. was president, and John A. Broadus was the secretary. By the way, their names put together spell Broadman. If you ever had a Broadman hymnal or anything published by Broadman, uh, we have um, a whole trade publishing division of Lifeway Christian Resources now called Broadman and Holman, B&H. And uh, all that goes back to this last failure uh, that Broadman, <clears throat> that these two men tried to put together. So they put together Sunday school literature. The Sunday school board, this last failure, uh, Basil, Basil Manley had this manifesto that he delivered in a speech to the 1863 Southern Baptist Convention. He said, the Sunday school is the nursery of the church, the camp of instruction for her young soldiers, the great missionary to the future. And how right he was, because Sunday school board became the, Sunday school became the bread and butter of Southern Baptists from that time frame right up until just in recent years. But in 1873, this Sunday school board folded, as the other versions had. The next one called the Sunday School Board started in 1891, and the secretary, the guy that was leading it, was named J.M. Frost. If you go to downtown Nashville right now, there's a building. It's got um, Doric columns in the front, and it's called the Frost Building. It was the first building to house the Baptist Sunday School Board, and it's named after this man, J.M. Frost. It was headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was then and continues to be the only money-making board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I'm going to get ahead of myself. We support all the work that we do through pooling our money together as Baptists. A portion of what you give on Sunday morning ultimately goes to Arkansas, to Little Rock, Arkansas, and part of it stays to support work in Arkansas. Some more of that money then goes to Nashville, and it gets allocated to the International Mission Board the North American Mission Board, to the six seminaries, and supports that work. But not one dime of the cooperative program goes to Lifeway or what was called the Baptist Sunday School Board. They raise their own support, and in fact, uh, unless it's changed, Lifeway used to give to the cooperative program themselves. And so it is a nonprofit, for-profit operation. <clears throat> Lifeway, Baptist Sunday School Board. Um, when, uh, why did they put it in Nashville? Uh, railroads ran right through the side of downtown Nashville. If you drive Broadway off the interstate into Nashville now, you'll cross a large set of railroad tracks. Um, when I worked at Lifeway, we had a huge warehouse where all of the materials were gathered and, and, and put together in packages and then were mailed out of that warehouse. When you place an order from when, uh, it was all pulled, collected. They had a whole logistics way of packaging all of that and getting it out the door. But in the old days, they used to go out the back door, and there were the railroad tracks. And they would literally load the rail cars, and they would go all over the United States and distribute that Sunday school literature to the churches and throughout the South. <clears throat> so that was the Baptist Sunday School Board was formed at the very end of the 19th century. Let's talk about education. A slew of state conventions started colleges during the first years of Baptist life in the South. 
The very first one was Furman University in South Carolina, started in 1826. Named for Richard Furman, who was directly influenced by a man named Shubel Stearns. If you've been with us each night, you'll know that he was the founder of the Sandy Creek Baptist Movement. And, um, and so, anyway, Furman University was the first. And you can see those other ones, Georgetown, University of Richmond, Mercer, Wake Forest, Sanford, Baylor, William Jewell, Carson Newman. The last one listed there, 1850, is Mississippi College, which is in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, I, I mentioned that one because for years, Arkansas Baptists supported Mississippi College because that was our school for sending preacher boys to be trained. And so until we began developing our own schools in Arkansas, that's where we sent guys to be trained. So that's where we sent our money. Uh, the first seminary that was started was the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, founded in 1859 in Greenville, South Carolina, which is, if you th know your history, 1859 is just before what happened? The Civil War. And so they got started in Greenville, but they got disrupted. And it disrupted a lot of things that were happening in Baptist life. What's interesting about that time, and I don't have a slide for this, is that there was a na nationwide revival that took place starting in 1857, ran to about 1859. It's called the Great Prayer Revival. Dr. Roy Fish, who's a native Arkansan, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but was a professor of evangelism for years at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth wrote his doctoral dissertation on the effect of that prayer revival on Southern Baptist life. It's the first revival that where we have documentation where Southern Baptists were directly impacted, and we grew dramatically in the years just before the Civil War. Um, just exploded. And so part of that result of that tremendous growth was the formation of this particular school. The faculty, James P. Boyce, John Broadus, Basil Manley and William Williams. Uh, Manley drafted the abstract of principles and 20 articles. The faculty had to sign it if they were going to teach at Southern Seminary. Uh, that went on for years, and then it stopped. And then in the early 90s, when Al Mohler became president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he restored the articles, and professors at Southern to this day have to sign it if they're going to teach at that institution. It closed during the war, and when it um, when it was over, they relocated to Louisville, Kentucky, where they are today in 1877. Now, there was an early controversy at that seminary uh, that involved a professor named Crawford Toy, Dr. Toy. Now, what's interesting about Dr. Toy is he was at one time a fiancé to Lottie Moon. And they just disagreed theologically. They liked each other, I guess, for whatever reason. I don't know what he looked like, Maybe he, but he obviously liked women of short stature. And, um, and so they had this relationship, and she almost did not go overseas because of this. He proposed to her, wanted to marry her, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that relationship broke up. He had studied overseas in Germany in the late 1800s. It was very popular, if you were going to study theology, to go to Germany and study. The problem is, is that a lot of the professors in Germany who were teaching were not committed to the literal uh, interpretation of Scripture, did not believe it was the inspired Word of God, that God had breathed it, did not see it as something that was without error. They saw it filled with historical mistakes and errors, 
And this professor came back from Germany filled with that kind of teaching. For example, one of the things he taught was that much of the Old Testament law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were not the composition of Moses, but were the composition of a group of at least five different individuals scattered over several hundred years. He didn't know their names, but their, their use of words and the word choices and the different documents in which they wrote, he gave them initials, J, E, P, and D. J-E-P-D theory is what it was called. And he began teaching that. It's long since been discredited as a way of understanding the Old Testament, but um, he taught it and he got fired. He later taught at Harvard and he became a Unitarian, meaning he was not a Trinitarian. Um, the last organization I want to mention is the WMU, the Women's Missionary Union. In 1885, the Southern Baptist Convention rejected women messengers, meaning that when they met once a year at the annual meeting, women were not allowed to serve as messengers. They could not represent their churches. They could not vote. And uh, so they voted to officially exclude them. That lasted until 1918. The WMU was founded shortly thereafter. Uh, the Women's Missionary Union formed in 1888. And it was a separate organization that's referred to as an auxiliary of the Southern Baptist Convention. It does not receive cooperative program dollars either and has served to be a fundraiser and an educational arm of Southern Baptists to inform churches about the activities of missionaries uh, and how we support missionaries. And so their headquarters are, were initially in Baltimore. Later they moved to Birmingham. The first leader was a lady named Annie Armstrong. Does anybody recognize that name? Annie Armstrong. What offering was named after her? The Annie Armstrong <laughs> Easter offering for home missions. And, um, and so that's how that originated. Now, with the uh, last few minutes that we have, I want to talk about the greatest challenge to the early SBC. So what I've done is tried to give you a flyover of about 50 years and where some of the initial organizations came from. But now I want to talk about what was one of the, we had a lot of controversies, but what was the one that, that was probably the most serious threat to Southern Baptists at the time? And it was one under this heading or this word landmarkism. Now I touched on it last week, landmarkism. Proverbs 22, 28 says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Landmark Baptists like to use that verse, although it has absolutely nothing to do with landmarkism. Uh, the definition of landmarkism. Uh, I've got four bullets here. The desire to return to the landmarks of the faith. We'll see what that means in a moment. They were anti-missions. Now that doesn't mean they didn't support missionaries. Uh, their conviction was that only the local church could appoint, send out, and support missionaries. A church could not delegate that to a board. A group of churches could not give that assignment to a board. That assignment only lives in the local church. That was one of their beliefs. They were it was a reaction to the encroachment of the Campbellites. And you remember we studied how in the early 1800s that there were people who believed that the church should only look like and do the things and say the things that you can read about in the New Testament. And so their understanding of the New Testament, they took literally 
Some would say to an extreme. For example, you can't use pianos. You can't use instruments or percussion instruments. Why? Because they didn't exist in the New Testament. And so the only singing that was allowed in a Campbellite church was, was vocal, and you couldn't use instruments. Two denominations came out of that movement to restore the New Testament church, and they were the Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ. And one of the um, nicknames for them are Campbellites. They don't like that nickname. I don't blame them, but that's the word that's used. This was a crisis because a lot of Baptists broke away and formed Churches of Christ. And you can go to a lot of southern towns of this day, and the two oldest churches in those towns will be a Baptist church, and then during the early 1800s, you'll see a Church of Christ. And if you read the history, it formed because a group pulled out of the First Baptist Church or whatever it was. Now, with landmarkism, though, there was some different emphasis. The key leader was a man named J.R. Graves. There were others. There was a guy named J.M. Pendleton who wrote a pastor's manual on, uh, that influenced a lot of pastors. There were others who were involved. Uh, A.C. Dayton. But he was strongly opposed to the Campbellites. He lived in Nashville. He debated and argued all the time. Very popular. He published the Tennessee Baptist, which was the official Baptist paper for Tennessee, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, and it doesn't say it, but also northern Alabama. The primary teachings of landmarkism in the 19th century. Baptist churches are the only true churches in the world. Amen? The church established by Jesus and the apostles was a Baptist church. They weren't kidding. There must be no pulpit affiliations with non-Baptists. If I were to ask um, Glenn Pettis at the Methodist Church to come and speak here for a community Thanksgiving event, uh, they would say that was wrong. You can't do that. Um, The true church is the local visible institution. What you see, the group of us, we are the true church. There's no such thing as an invisible body of Christ that crosses denominational lines. Um, The collection of all Baptist churches equals the kingdom of God. And I'm not going to go into too much detail on that. Let me keep moving. Only Baptist ordination and ordinances are legitimate. If you're baptized by another group, even if it's scriptural, even if it's believer's baptism, if it's not a Baptist church, you've got to baptize them again. You ever seen that happen? It happens. Since other denominations are not true churches, their baptism, even by aversion, is not valid. They practice close communion, or he did, J.R. Graves, practice close communion, meaning only Baptists could participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, there, there are other forms of landmarkism that go even further, and they would say only members of that local church, the members can participate. If you're visiting from another Baptist church, you can't participate. So there's open communion, which is any Christian can participate. There's close, where any Baptist can participate. And there's closed, where only the members of that church can participate. Open, close, and closed. Some restrict it further, and I I mentioned that already. Other primary teachings. Only local churches can appoint missionaries and direct missions. Um, I've already talked about this. They're not opposed to missions, but the mission boards. In 1859, the Southern Baptist Convention refused to disband the Foreign Mission Board. Graves asked them to do that. Uh, Associations and conventions are permissible for fellowship, but they have no authority. 
Another teaching is successionism or church perpetuity. Baptist churches have always existed in every age by unbroken historical succession. There's a book by J.M. Carroll called The Trail of Blood. And the whole purpose, the whole thinking of landmarkism is that I'm your pastor today. I was baptized by pastor so-and-so years ago, Mark Kaysen in 1979. And then he was baptized by somebody outside Tupelo, Mississippi in 1940-something. And then he was baptized. And you can have this succession where churches and associations, and you can trace them all the way back to the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. And that was very important to them and still is uh, to this day. So there have always been Baptist churches. We are not Protestants, and I do agree with that. We are not Protestants by definition. We did not come out of the Reformation. But, um, but they take it even further. This had a tremendous influence on the Southern Baptist Convention. Some churches left, but not many left. So what does that mean? That means that the landmark thinking stayed within a lot of Southern Baptist churches. Uh, one of the results was that we changed the name of people who went to the annual conventions and association meetings. We changed it from delegates to messengers. Delegates represent the views of their church. Messengers are responsible only for their personal views and can vote accordingly. And um, now, something I want you to see, and I don't have much left. We'll blow through it quickly, but something I want you to see. The Arkansas Baptist State Convention that you and I are part of is the only convention that has elements of landmarkism in our Articles of Incorporation. We've had them from the very, nearly from the very beginning, and they're still there. I want you to see it. It's up on the screen, Article 3, Section 1, Paragraph 2. The Arkansas Baptist State Convention Articles of Incorporation. Regular Baptist churches are those Baptist churches which in doctrine and practice adhere to the principles and the spirit of the Baptist faith and message is adopted by the 2000 session of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and here it is, the Baptist faith and message shall not be interpreted as to permit open communion and or alien immersion. What do you think alien immersion is? What's that? Accepting someone else's baptism. And um, in 2007... Um, I worked with a committee to try to remove that language from the Articles of Incorporation, 2007. The vast majority of Southern Baptist churches in Arkansas do not subscribe to that statement. While they wouldn't, uh, and there's, there's two different definitions of open communion, most people would not accept the idea of a non-Christian taking the Lord's Supper, so we don't define it that way. But most of our Arkansas Baptist churches would allow people who are Christians to participate in the Lord's Supper without regard to their church membership. Uh, alien immersion uh, is accepting another church's uh, person baptized in another church outside of Southern Baptist life. The way typically it's interpreted by landmark Southern Baptists is that if another flavor of Baptist did the baptism, it doesn't count. And so we, we felt that that was uh, difficult, that was problematic. We felt it was kind of, we're the only state convention that has that language in our documents. And so we actually made an effort at one of our annual meetings over two years. We formed a study committee, we did all the right things. But a small group 
of pastors from a certain region of the state. I won't mention where. It's over around Heber Springs. Um, pushed back, and it was defeated. Uh, why? Because there was a desire to maintain harmony in Baptist life. But in Arkansas, we have some of the strongest landmark churches in the United States. And so let me uh, tell you why. Uh, the results of this emphasis on landmarkism caused other controversies. And we don't need to look at that. Let's look at the controversy. Go ahead and skip. The gospel mission controversy. This was an attack on the foreign mission board by an employed foreign missionary, Tarleton Crawford. He was a missionary to China. He had a lot of personal reasons for what he did. But he began advocating that the foreign mission board had no right to tell him what to do that he had no accountability to the Foreign Mission Board, and that he should only be accountable to the church that he was from originally. He, he was fired, and the Southern Baptists did not agree with him. Uh, another controversy that erupted was the Witsit controversy. The Witsit controversy, William Witsit was a professor and the president at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote a book that said that Baptists originated from in the early 1600s from some early Anabaptists, that, that the very first Baptists in continental Europe and in England came out of that stream from the Middle Ages. And of course, the landmark Baptists said, that's just not right, and a big uh, fracas developed, and, and even the people who agreed with him were upset with him because he created strife among brethren, and he was fired. Um, most of our, in, in some places like Texas, it was a state of associations, but they didn't have a state convention. When they formed a state convention, uh, a man, a pastor named Samuel Hayden uh, attacked it. He didn't want there to be a, a general convention. He had first come to Dallas in 1883. The pastor church that had split from First Baptist Dallas over landmark principles. He helped reunite them. He started a newspaper called the Texas Baptist, and just like J.R. Graves, he published his thinking uh, widely, and it was accepted in a lot of churches. It was a competitor to the Texas Baptist Standard newspaper, which still is in print today. Uh, he opposed the formation of the Baptist General Convention of Texas. He lost that fight. The BGCT still exists to this day. They refused to seat him as a messenger, and when that happened, he pulled out and formed the Baptist Missionary Association in 1899. The short, no, short version is known as the BMA. You ever heard the BMA? It wasn't this one. It's a different one, but it's the BMA. Um, at the same time that was happening, Ben Bogard of Searcy, Arkansas, led an attempt to get the Arkansas Baptist Convention to be more landmark in its orientation and its organization. Uh, he lost that fight as well, Ben Bogard of Searcy. He formed Instead, the American Baptist Association in 1905, the ABA. How many have heard the ABA? And what happened was that first Baptist Missionary Association, the BMA, merged with the ABA in 1924. So now you have this, this group. The ABA today is based out of Texarkana, Arkansas, and they are landmark as a day is long in their thinking. Uh, they are Baptists. They preach the gospel. But they also believe you can trace our history back to the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. They believe in closed communion. Um, they don't believe in mission boards where you pull your funds and resources. Um, and then something interesting happened. 
1950, some of the old BMA uh, pastors and churches broke away from the ABA, and they formed a new BMA. That's the one you've heard of, the Baptist Missionary Association of America. They formed in 1950. One of the first things they did was buy a piece of property from Arkansas Baptist, Central Baptist College. Central Baptist College, for a good 50 years, from 1900 to about 1950, somewhere in there, was a Baptist school for women. But eventually it folded and lay dormant for about five years. And when the BMA was formed, they approached Arkansas Baptist State Convention and said, we'd like to buy that property, and they did. And today, Central Baptist College is a thriving co-ed school in Conway. And, um, and one of the interesting phenomena that has occurred with the BMA uh, is that some of their largest churches, uh, while I was at the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, have, have joined us. Central Baptist Church in Conway is the largest BMA church in the BMA denomination in Arkansas. Um, Don Channer, pastor there, um, we all became friends, and, and he discovered that we had a lot to offer as Southern Baptists. And today they are duly aligned, meaning they are members both of Arkansas Baptist and Southern Baptist, and they are members of the BMA. As you can imagine, the BMA is the more moderate of the two denominations of BMA and ABA. Uh, ABA pastors typically are very isolated and very lonely. I remember, and every now and then, a Southern Baptist church will call a pastor from an ABA background. When we would go and visit with those pastors, because we visited with all the new pastors in the state, we would go and visit with those new pastors and we began talking to them about what we could do for them to help them. I, I sat with guys who literally had tears running down their face. They said, no one has come and asked us how they could help us. It was always, we want you to give more, we want you to do more for us. Um, and I hate to generalize, but typically, uh, ABA pulpits will run down SBC churches. And, uh, and we've encountered that again and again and again. But BMA is different. And so uh, the Oasis Church in Little Rock, Central Baptist Church in Conway, uh, very wonderful pastors and thriving uh, churches, and they are part of us, and they are still BMA as well. So, cool stuff. Questions that you might have before I close? We'll, we'll talk about that uh, next week. I, I plan to do about three sessions on the 1900s, bringing us up to date to where we are today. Uh, one of the things I hope you would see from tonight is that we've always had contro controversy and we've always been in flux. We've always been changing. But the Northern Baptists went through a series of changes not unlike what we went through. Uh, they did form as a denomination. Uh, Baptists were one of the only groups that did not reunite after the Civil War. Uh, their, their theological schools were more negatively affected by German theology, liberal theology. And so after the war, we were not interested in reuniting with them. There were still a lot of good pastors, preachers, and the gospel is still being preached, a lot of them. Uh, they became the American Baptist Convention. I believe they have a different name now. I'd have to go look it up. American Baptist Convention, they're smaller. They have struggled. They've had several splits. 
um, the Conservative Baptist Convention or Conservative Baptists of America split away from them. Um, and there are other groups that have pulled out. And, um, but there's still some wonderful people in, in that denomination. Southern Baptists, however, in comparison, we are in all 50 states. We are the most diverse uh, of the Baptist groups um, in terms of ethnicity and composition. Um, the irony is that we are called Southern Baptists, but we are not Southern uh, fully in our identity by any means. So, Northern Baptists went on, but they did not develop and grow as us as we did. Anybody else? Uh, yes, an ABA church typically would not accept a Southern Baptist baptism in that church. You can never join an ABA church on a statement of faith. We will receive people by statement. Statement is maybe you were a member of a church years ago, uh, you were baptized biblically, you know Jesus, there's no question about that, but you have been members of other churches. Maybe you moved up north, you moved out west, you moved overseas and you were a member of the base chapel, you were a member of something else, and then you come back, and it's been so long that rather than try to have them dig up a record that they can't even find in that other church, we would receive someone by statement, a statement that they, have, they know Jesus, they've trusted him, and they've been biblically baptized. They would not do that. They want to know that you were baptized in the right kind of church. Uh, one of the complaints of the pastors, even in Arkansas Baptist when we talked about changing this, this rule. One of the complaints that they have is that when a church like in Marion accepts someone by statement, if I know First Baptist Marion did, uh, does that, or uh, Bellevue Baptist accepts someone by statement, that, that when that person comes to this church that is more um, committed to landmark principles, they wind up accepting someone's membership, transfer a letter from another church, but from a person they never would have accepted if they'd come to them first. I know it sounds bizarre, but I mean, that's the thinking. I remember one time in the old Shelby County Baptist Association in Memphis, they had an association meeting where there were some pastors present who were committed to landmark principles, and they said that any church in Shelby County that accepts people by statement ought to be thrown out of the association. At which point, the messengers from Bellevue Baptist stood up and said, well, we have a problem. Um, so, so it has been a, it's still a tension point in Arkansas and with church states that border Arkansas. Um, but we are a hotbed for that thinking. It's, it's dying out. But it, it can, it, oh yeah, it can cause problems in a family and a marriage and yes. Someone else? Yes, ma'am. We would accept a, a person who's a Christian and who's been biblically baptized, and we don't go over that criteria, but if someone is a Christian, we would allow them to participate in the Lord's Supper. 
a person with a landmark perspective would call that open communion. They would call that open. Now, now some people think open communion means anybody, Christian or non-Christian, can participate. That is not what open communion is. Open is simply saying we would allow a person who says they're a Christian to participate in the Lord's Supper. We wouldn't ask them for their papers or anything like that. Um, if we practice close communion, we would only let other Southern Baptist churches participate. If we practice closed, you could only participate if you were a member of this church. And some churches practice closed. Baptist churches do. Yes. Yes. And I mentioned it because it, is, it was one of the great um, threats, if you will, to the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention because it really threatened to bleed off a lot of, a lot of churches and a lot of people. In Arkansas, it finally came to a head over the cooperative program. When the cooperative program was launched, uh, about a third of the churches in Arkansas left and went to other denominations. The giving hardly changed. Just saying. Not invited to participate. Okay. Unfortunately, sometimes it depends on who your pastor is at the time. Uh, church should actually have their own position on that um, in terms of criteria. But, but a lot of times, the church will typically go with whatever their pastor's position is on that. <laughs> 